Good to see you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, let's open those up to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20 is where we're going to be at together this afternoon. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, I'm curious if you ever feel like there's more to this life. Like you just have this thing in you uh, that, that makes you feel, man, there's just got to be more to this life. There's got to be more to this life. You know, um, it's interesting. Um, I even just kind of Googled that, uh, which is always kind of fun. And um, just a little warning, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s in Christian culture and you Google the phrase more to this life, you're going to get slammed with Stephen Curtis Chapman stuff. Okay. Just warning you right now. Um, so you kind of have to like change the phrase a little bit. But if you do that, you will find that people are asking this question a ton. And it's interesting. I mean, I just read through even some blogs and Reddit threads where someone gets on and says, hey, I just, this is happening. And I just keep thinking, man, there's got to be more to this life. And so people will kind of respond and give their advice. And um, it was fascinating just to kind of even read through people's responses. You know, people are saying different things like, you know what, it sounds like you just need to get a new job or um, I, I would leave your marriage if I were you. That's, that's what I, I would think you should do. Or, um, you know, I tried taking up a new hobby and it really helped. Or really, you just need to travel more. That's what I did and it really worked. And so you're kind of getting these advice um, things in response to this larger-than-life philosophical question. That, and the, the responses are basically saying, change your scenery. Change your scenery. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually talks about this idea very famously in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. So if you're interested in exploring Christianity, it's a really helpful book. Or if you are a Christian, you, you want to dig in deeper to some um, larger-than-life sort of questions. It's a really helpful book in many ways. Um, but in there, he famously talks about how creatures, even animals, you know, have that we're born with these desires. And he's saying that Um, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So he gives an example, like if you're a baby and you're born and you're hungry, you have this desire, and he goes, hey, good thing there's food, right? That can satisfy that desire. Many of us felt that this week as we fasted even as a church, right? You have this desire, it could be met with with food, right? Or he talks about, um, you know, somebody like like a duck, I guess, he goes, a duck has this desire to swim, and he goes, good thing there's, there's water for that. It can meet and satisfy that desire. Or if you're like, man, I just need some fresh air, you know, well, good thing. Hey, you have that desire, there's some air that you can get outside and breathe and take that in. And so his conclusion basically is this, if I then find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, if there's something within me that there's not like, well, hey, there's this for that and meets that desire... He goes, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to make you go, man, what is this? To suggest the real thing. Do you think there's more than this life? There's more than this life. I know you're at church, and so many of you probably naturally think, well, of course, right? I'm here. But, but how do we know? How do we know that there's actually more than this? And does that belief really have any influential sway over your life right now? 
Our passage in Luke's gospel this afternoon is showing us that because of Jesus, we should be certain that there is more to this life than meets the eye. Because of Him, we should be certain that there's more to this life than meets the eye. And so the three things that I I want us to see in this passage uh, this afternoon is that there is more than this life. Jesus is proving that. He's arguing that. Secondly, we're seeing there's more to Jesus. And thirdly, there's more than meets the eye. There's more than meets the eye. And what what I hope we walk away with really convinced and convicted about is that there is more than this because Jesus lives. Because Jesus lives, we know there is more than this. And He lives so that we can live. He lives so that we can live. So let's look at this first section in our passage in Luke chapter 20, beginning of verse 27 through 40. Uh, we're going to see here that there is more than this life. Look at verse 27. <clears throat> there came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection." But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So we're introduced to a group of people here right away called the Sadducees. This is the only time... In Luke's gospel, they, they popped up. And so if you've ever been tempted to think that people who lived 2,000 years ago plus weren't sophisticated, thoughtful, rational people um, who just kind of got swept along with weird stuff, uh, take exhibit A, the Sadducees, right? These were people that were very rational, right? They were prided themselves on being rational. So we have some really smart people here that connect very well to our Western mindset, um, number one, they're aristocrats, uh, not aristocats, which I'm always tempted to say because that Disney movie, right? But aristocrats, uh, which means that they live at the top of the social class. Uh, they are rationalistic thinkers, which often made them very skeptic, skeptical of things. So they were skeptics, and they were very wealthy people. But furthermore, uh, combine that with they were religious people. They were actually a sect of, of Jewish high priests, And uh, uniquely, though, they only believed that the Pentateuch, so the first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that those five books that Moses wrote, right, were the only authoritative um, books in that they should accept. And so they rejected the oral tradition in, in Judaism, and they only accepted those books. And so we are meant to know right away in verse 27 something else that they deny that there's a resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. Right? They don't believe that there is more than this life. The resurrection. 
And they have a good question for Jesus here, but they aren't looking to learn anything. They're actually trying to trip Jesus up and prove the irrational logic of a resurrection. That's what they're trying to do. And so we have some skeptics who don't believe in the miraculous, creating an extreme hypothetical game of whose wife in heaven will the widow be game, right? Their problem is that they think the afterlife or the next life, the new creation, is exactly like this one. And the story, right, that they give here kind of sounds horrible. Uh, I'll be honest, maybe some people like very abusive almost. Here you have this woman whose husband dies and she just keeps getting married over and over to all of this guy's brothers and no kids and she's left childless. You know, it sounds like a horrible thing, but it's important for us in summary just to realize that their question comes from one of those five books that they actually think is authoritative. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 25. There was this Levite law that says if a woman's husband dies and they have no children, the brother of that husband is supposed to take her in. Right? This was to care and provide for this widow in a society that didn't have structures like that, that this was the structure to care for this woman. Right? And it was also to carry on that brother's family name. Right? It was to honor his brother in doing so, so that his name wouldn't be blotted out from Israel. So there were some good reasons why uh, this was in place. And it was actually, it's kind of fun, we don't have time to get into it today, but you should go read Deuteronomy 25 this evening just for fun, because if, if you don't do it, if you don't take in this widow uh, in this law, it's actually pretty severe. Like this widow is told she can go spit in this guy's face and take a sandal off his foot and say, now you're the person whose sandal was taken off his foot, which sounds like a crazy insult for us, but um, whatever. It's kind of weird, kind of funny. Um, but more so, the Sadducees, it's important for us to see the Sadducees, they're giving this crazy hypothetical situation, but it's rooted in the only part of the Bible that they believe in. The only part of the Bible they believe in. And in verse 34, Jesus begins to give his response. And unlike me, he doesn't just say, oh, come on. Right? This is ridiculous. He answers it. <clears throat> this whose wife will she be dilemma by pointing out that the next life won't be exactly like this one. And what does he say? Look in verse 34. He says that people in this life get married. Verse 35, what does he say? In the life to come after death, there will be no marriage. Jesus' reasoning is that there will be no need for marriage because people will live forever. He actually goes so far as to say people cannot die anymore. So his reasoning basically is that when this world was created, there was only two human beings made in the image of God, Adam and Eve, and they were, they were given a commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? Basically, have babies, fill the earth. In the next life, he's saying, all these people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus will rise to new life, and there will be all these people, and they cannot die anymore, and there won't be a need to make babies. That's basically Jesus' logical reasoning and argument here. Right, but then look, what does he say? There are some who will be considered worthy to attain to this new life after death. Right, so since there will be so many raised and no one will be able to die, there is no need for marriage is what he's saying. Now, this might be really, um, what, disappointing, right? I mean, this isn't like an easy thing to go, yeah, yeah no marriage, guys. All right, so moving on, right? So um, it's pretty sad, you know, honestly, even this week as I'm thinking about this, um, you know, I love Elizabeth, right? I mean, this is kind of uh, strange news to even read out of the lips of Jesus here. This might challenge us because even as Christians, we believe that marriage is this good, God-given thing, but it also might challenge us more so if marriage is like a God thing to us. 
right? If the thought of marriage, even if we aren't married, if that's like the idealized thing for us, especially in a Western society where marriage is sort of this culmination of romantic love, and that's how people see it, right? It's a way to express and receive love um, and that sort of thing. But what I want you to know, and there's so much more you can go into about this idea, what I want you to know is that the new life that Jesus is talking to you about, and in response to the Sadducees, he's not talking about heaven being a downgrade, but an upgrade. It's actually really great news. Jesus is saying relationships will operate on a completely different level. And also notice, what is the language he used? Remember, the story is about um, this woman who seven times over has no child, right? No son, actually. And Jesus says those worthy to attain to the resurrection are going to be called what? Sons of God, right? Sons of the resurrection. So do you see what he's saying here? If you are worthy to rise to that new life, you will be a member of a family, right? You are children of God. That's what he's saying. So the Sadducees are rational people, so Jesus' response to them is is rational. He's saying, well, there's not going to be marriage in heaven, so that silences them. They're like, oh, dang it, right? That was our big thing, right? We've been building up for this, right? But notice how Jesus doesn't end there. That's not his whole purpose even to respond to them. He keeps going, and he grounds his teaching by using the only part of the Old Testament that they see as authoritative. This is a really good move by Jesus here, because look in verse 37. I love this. What does he say? He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, which I love that. If you ever don't know where a story or verse is in the Bible, Jesus does the same thing, right? You're always like, that verse in Galatians, or what's that story about Samuel, and you always feel guilty about it. Jesus is like, the one about the bush, right? And we're all like, okay, yeah. Right, Jesus does it too, okay? He goes, where he, uh, the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. All live to him. He's referring to this story, this miraculous story, the early first chapters of Exodus. If, you're not, if you haven't read it, go and read it. It's a really amazing story where Moses is walking in the wilderness. He sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And then he hears the voice of God from the bush. And God says, come here, remove your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. And, and through that conversation, Moses basically says, God, you know, who are you? And what does God say? God doesn't say, well, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, but now I will be your God. No, he says, I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham. So what's Jesus's point? If God is still the God of these people when he's speaking to Moses, and they are like dead, dead, like they are really dead, they must still be alive and present with God somewhere. That's his point. He's saying you misunderstand the resurrection. Number one, relationships are going to be different and better in the new heavens and new earth. And he says the Pentateuch does teach the resurrection and how God mentions being the God of people who have already died. So he silences his critics. On their own terms, he argues that there is much more than this life. There is life beyond this one. There is a resurrection. You were made for a world to come. 
how can we know? Right? I mean, how can we know? I mean, this is actually a, a question that um, just infatuates us in our society. People, people think about this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, if you want to write a bestseller, you know, uh, publish stories where people say they've died and seen, you know, entered heaven and come back to earth, right? I mean, we, we love this kind of stuff. I mean, we're infatuated with, is there life after this one? Just again, Google search it. You know, you're going to see people's infatuation with this. And I even came across an article this week from Forbes um, that the title of the article said this, medium Tyler Henry's Netflix series proves there is life after death. This person, I don't even think they're religious in any way, said this medium, so a guy who claims, right, to be able to hear from dead people and communicate with people living, basically a demonic thing in the Bible, right? Tyler Henry has a Netflix series coming out this next month, so in March, right, which is like tomorrow or something. This person says, this documentary series proves there is life after death. And, and we look at all these stories of people's testimonials and things like this, and they, they're really bestsellers and that kind of stuff, and we go, man, is there life after death? And we look to these other things to go, is there? And you guys, Jesus is basically saying, you don't believe? Don't listen to that stuff. Watch me. Watch me. That's his conclusion here. Jesus ends this section of being questioned, which Mike kind of explored last week, and he gives one final question that they can't answer. And in this question, he's basically saying, you don't believe that there's more than this life. Watch me. There's more to Jesus. Look at verse 41. What does it say? He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So Jesus busts out the most famous passage in the Old Testament that's describing this future Messiah king that was promised to come from David's line. And David is the most famous and heralded um, king in Israel's history. And he's saying, hey, David wrote these words, right? He said, my Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He says, David said this. So he's saying, if the Messiah is David's great, 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 great grandson, so son is the word he uses here, why would he call his son Lord? If you have David, the greatest king, and he has a descendant, it's his son, why would David call his son Lord? Why would he do that? That doesn't make sense. In that day and age, you would never have a son look at their father or grandfather um, and the grandfather would say to the son, Lord. That this is not how that would function. This is his question. Well, what's going on here? Well, rather than explaining it myself, I, I'll just, I just chose one New Testament passage that picks up on this because this is used a lot in the New Testament. The, the, the early church refers to this psalm often. And so just I want us to consider um, the first sermon Peter gives at Pentecost. So what's happened is Jesus has died on the cross He's risen from the dead. People have seen him in a body, right? It's a brand new body. He's got some scars where the nails were, that kind of thing. And then they watch him ascend, and they are told to wait, and God will send the Holy Spirit to live in you. And that happens. That's happening. 
And people are hearing the gospel in their own language, and there's a commotion and a crowd gathering, and people are saying, what's happening? And so Peter stands up to explain what's happening, and in this sermon, this is what he says. Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out his... Uh, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What's Peter's point? His point is David's dead, right? He says his tomb is with us today. And so when he says this psalm, when he writes this psalm, he says that he spoke about the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus would rise to new life and ascend to the throne. Do you see Jesus' point? There's way more to him than you can realize. There's more to Jesus than these people even realize. He is God. He sits on the throne. He is God. He's before David, but then he's born in David's family line as the Messiah. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Right? There is more to Jesus. He is he's God. Um, the other a couple weeks ago, we and my family we drove to Eagle Crest for a little getaway, and um, we left kind of at breakfast time. So Elizabeth bought us those um, a pack of those Dunford donuts at Fred Meyer. Do you know what I'm talking about? Dunford donuts. They're the fancy donuts, right? They're like six dollars for six, so really high class, high rolling here, right? They were cho- they're cho- the chocolate ones with chocolate frosting on them, okay? They're really good. Okay, so I, we're driving. I was having my coffee, eating this donut, right? It was going really well. It was really awesome. And I had that thought that we all kind of have when you're eating a donut for breakfast, you know? Um, that thought where you're like, this is weird how this is okay. Like, it's just weird how it's okay. Um, because I imagined if Elizabeth got in the car that morning and I was like, hey, let's, let's have some breakfast for the road. And she goes, I brought a sheet cake, you know? And she's just dishing out slices of sheet cake and I'm driving with my coffee like, yeah, this is great, right? No, that would be so wrong, wouldn't it? Right? That would be completely backwards, like we don't do that, right? But, but because we've called something a donut as breakfast food, because we've given it a different name, it now is acceptable to us, right? As a breakfast item. It should be dessert, but we, it's okay, right? It's breakfast, isn't it? We know how this kind of stuff works. We do this with various things. We, we name something that's objectively one thing, but we name it something so that we can receive it the way we want to receive it and at the time we want to 
receive it, right? Guys, in a very similar way, we do this exact thing with Jesus, don't we? Same thing with Jesus. We label him to fit us so that we can receive him the way that we want to receive him. Right? But we don't get to relativize and decide who Jesus is, do we? I mean, C.S. Lewis famously said, a good grid to think about with Jesus is he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, and we could add today legend. Right? He's either a liar, everything that he said, he was just lying about, and you can't take him at his word. He's a lunatic, he was crazy, right? He just said ridiculous things. Right? He's a legend, people just made this stuff up. But then you have to deal with all the eyewitness accounts that saw him, and how in, how in the world this changed the entire course of history. Or, he's Lord. He's the one who the Lord said to my Lord after he died, after he rose from the dead, after he had a physical body, a new body. It was the same body, but a new body, right? He could do things that we can't do, but he also did things that we do. People could put the... Doubting Thomas put his hands in the scars, right? He had a body, and they watched him ascend, and and the angel said he'll return in that same way. So he sits today on the throne reigning with a body. And he will get up one day, and he'll come back. But he's real. He's not an idea, right? He's not a philosophy, He's not a religious movement. He's Jesus, the Lord on the throne. Ray Ortland said this once, and it kind of made me feel weird, but it's helped. Right? He says, I, when I pray, I like to picture Jesus' arm hair. Right? Which is a weird thought. But it actually helps because it helps you remember Jesus is real. He has a resurrected body that he ascended to heaven with the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of the new creation. He's real. You can have a real relationship with him. He's not an idea. And there he sits, right? And he cannot die, cannot die. That is good news. And here we're told that one day, all of God's enemies will put in subjection under his feet. What an image, right? It'll be his footstool. I mean, you only put your feet on something that's inferior, right? I mean, if someone puts their feet on you, that's disgusting. I have a footstool up in our little bonus room. It's it's nothing cool. I don't even know where we got it, how we got it, to be honest with you. It's the least important piece of furniture in that room and my favorite at the same time. It doesn't matter what happens to it. It could be disgusting and dirty because all it has to do is serve the purpose of me putting my feet up and relaxing. And what happens when you put your feet up on a footstool? It means you're not working. It means you're resting from your work. See, Jesus already worked at the cross. And he's worked when God lifted him up from the dead because the grave couldn't hold him. And he has ascended and he sits today and one day he'll get up from that throne and he'll return and he'll judge everybody, right? And it says that he will make all of his enemies his footstool. Everything will be on subjection under his feet. 
right? And some of these we love, right? Sin, no more. Satan, no more, right? Death, nuh-uh, it's all gone, right? He conquered it. But also, one day Jesus will put under his feet all those who are opposed to him, who said, no, I'm going to label you the way that I want to label you. Do you believe there is more than this life? Look at Jesus. He says, watch me. I'll prove that there is. And when you look at him, you don't see him just as a teacher or a moral person who did good things. He's more. So the question then is, in verse 35, how can you be considered worthy to attain to the age of new life? Right? That's not all-encompassing, is it? Well, it's only by giving your life to Jesus. And this is through recognizing by faith and trusting in Him to forgive you and save you from your sin. But not just to get a clean slate of forgiveness, it's then to what? Submit to Him as Lord. Have you done that? Have you done that? If you haven't, I'm happy to talk to you. Or maybe you came with somebody who would love to talk to you about that as well. And maybe you're like, I've totally done that. Are you continuing to do that? Are you repenting? Are you taking up your cross daily and following Him as Lord? Because here's the last thing we're going to see. There's more than meets the eye. Because if, if that's true, if the living God is your God, then we live to Him. We live to Him. Verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So here we see two portraits of two very different people in these verses. We see a hypocritical scribe who knew God's Word, taught God's Word, even could write, and we see a poor widow, the most helpless person in society. And they signify two very completely different ways to live. And do you remember, look over in verse 38 again, the last chapter, do you remember what Jesus said? God is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to Him. This is not a command, this is an object, objective truth. If the living God is your God, especially when you die, if you live, you live to Him. That's just what people do who have God as their God, who have Jesus as their Lord. They live to Him. This is, this is what life looks like as a Christian. And, and then, but look, the, the New Testament authors pick, on this, pick up on this a lot, actually. And so, for the sake of time, I just have two here for you. Paul writes in Romans 14, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 2 Corinthians, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Right, so we either live to ourselves or we live to God. And if we live to ourselves while claiming to have Jesus 
as our Lord, like these scribes. Right? We are getting life all wrong, to say the least. We're doing it all wrong. I mean, the other day I, I walked in on my four-year-old um, Isla. She, was, uh, she had this little mandarin orange she was peeling, and she had a little cup there, and she would take the orange out, and she would squeeze the juice in the cup, and then she would eat the skin. And I was like, that's gross. And then I was like, but she's probably just making fresh squeezed juice. And then once that was all completed, she took the scraps from the peel, threw them away, and dumped the juice in the sink. And I was like, hey, girl, you're doing this wrong, right? This is completely backwards in everything that you're doing right now, right? Because nobody likes that part. Anybody eats an orange for the juice part, right? You're supposed to enjoy the juice and cut off the skins. That's what you're supposed to do. Not enjoy the skin and cut yourself off from enjoying the juice, right? This is how this works. Most people get this, right? Notice the scribes, right? What are they doing? They claim to have God as their God. What are they doing? They don't live to God. They live for themselves. They're casting off God, aren't they? Right? They do life wrong, and to God, it's disgusting, to say the least. It's flat-out disgusting. Because he warns the crowd, what does he say? Beware of these people, which would be very alarming for these people because the scribes were a kind of people that you thought you would want to be like. They were to imitate. Right? But, but they live their lives all wrong. They live for themselves. They live their life, what does it say there? Trying to be admired. They seek this through their own wealth, through wearing fancy clothes, and even through their religion. Right? They pray long prayers. I mean, these are the kind of people that live in such a way where you would leave the room that day and you're like, oh man, so-and-so was there. It was awesome. Right? Or, oh man, did you hear that prayer? That was incredible. So spiritual. Right? But what does Jesus say? Look, they are hypocrites. And look at how, this is the thing that disgusts Jesus the most. They devour widows' houses. Widows are prominent here, Right? Jesus sees through their actions and knows they are pushing down the most helpless in their society so that they can climb another rung on the ladder. And Jesus says in the final verse, basically, they are not worthy to attain to this new life in the new age. That's putting it mildly because what does he say? They will receive greater condemnation. They're not going to be in that one, that next life. But also notice the widow. Jesus looks up, we're told, and he sees the rich putting in money that would keep the temple running. And just to be really clear, Jesus doesn't criticize this action. He doesn't say this is bad or that these people are bad. I mean, this is good. What they're doing, these are rich people giving money to the temple. This is good, right? He doesn't criticize this. But what does he do? It says, verse 2, he saw a poor widow who put in two small copper coins which in this day and age would be the equivalent, I did, if I did my math correctly, $1.70. Okay? And what does Jesus say? She put in more than all of them. Not one of them, right? But all of them, cumulatively. Right? Does Jesus, I mean, like not know how money works? Well, not at all. There's more than meets the eye. Right? Jesus sees our actions and he weighs them. Right? She is living to God. 
isn't she? Right? She puts in even the stuff that she needs to live on. Right? She's enjoying the juice, right? And she's cutting off the, the skin and all the other stuff, isn't she? I mean, this is the more-than-this-life kind of living. She even gives, what does it say, out of her poverty, all that she has to live on. I mean, how many of us can say that? Right? That I've given everything that I have even to live on. No, here we have someone who has the living God as her God, so she lives to Him. Right? This means that life is not about the amount of stuff that we have, and it's not about the amount of stuff that we give. It's whether or not God is our substance. Life is not about the honor that we can get from other people. It's whether we get our honor from God. There's more than meets the eye because there's more than this life. So what would living to Jesus look like? If we get really practical, right? What would this even look like? If all who live, live to Him, right? What would this look like? Well, the closest home in our text is that living for Jesus looks very generous and costly. Very generous and costly. I mean, this has always marked the early church from its inception. I read this letter to you um, years ago, um, but it always comes to my mind when it comes when I come to this idea. But there's this amazing story where you had a guy named Caesar Hadrian living in the Roman world in the early first century church, where Christianity was beginning to grow and sort of create a stir. And people were like, "What is this Christianity thing?" And so he kind of sends out this guy named Aristides to go and basically spy on the early church and to figure out what's going on here, right? Because there's this whole movement happening. And so Aristides goes and he spies it out and he takes his observations and he writes his observations down to deliver back to Caesar. And this is what he says as he observes Christians. He says, they love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. So it's not like, yeah, did you hear I gave Joe the car or whatever. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. And I love this. Such, O king, is their manner of life. So manner, not one time like off things, right? Listen to this. And verily, this is a new people. And there is something divine in the midst of them. What encompasses this? paragraph, right? It's, they're not living to themselves, are they? This is more than this life kind of living, you guys. More than this life kind of living is marked by three things. It's number one, knowing that there is more than this life. Number two, it's believing there is way more to Jesus. And thirdly, it's in light of that now living in such a way that says, I'm doing blank for you, Jesus, because you have loved me. It's practically in everything in my life saying, I'm doing blank because I love Jesus. I'm doing the dishes tonight because I love Jesus, and the way I love Jesus is by serving my roommates. It's I'm cleaning up after my kids and not complaining about it because I love you, Jesus, and you got down and cleaned up my mess when I couldn't clean it up myself. It's I'm being honest on my taxes and stewarding my finances well because I love you, Jesus, and you are my provider and all I have is from you. 
It's, I'm going to hold my tongue, Jesus, and instead bless those who revile against me because I love you, Jesus. And, and you didn't revile in return, but you blessed and you even gave your life, which was for me. I'm going to show hospitality to people that I don't even know very well or maybe don't even know you and think differently than you because, Lord Jesus, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in, not just to your home, but your family. I live to Jesus because whether I'm here or whether I die, I'm his. He's on the throne and I'm a part of his family. And even more so, you guys, the Bible is telling us that this world is moving towards a day where there will be a wedding. It's the final wedding. It's the marriage dinner of the lamb who was slain for our sin and his bride. It's all those who are worthy to attain to that new life. He's loved us and given himself for us and defeated death so that our aching that we have in our heart that says, man, is there more to this life? We go, yes, there is. But we don't go, there is, so we should take a vacation. Maybe switch up the job for a bit. Find a new marriage. We don't go, yes, there is more to this life. It's out here somewhere. No, it's not. There's more to this life. Yes, there is because Jesus proved there's more than this life because he got up from death. And so now as I live to him, we live while looking back to him as we move into the future. It's like I'm in a rowboat. I don't know if you've ever rowed a boat before with two oars or you've seen somebody do it on the Olympics or something. What happens? They face backwards, fixated on a point while they row in the other direction. I fix my eyes on the resurrected one going, hey, there's more than this life because there's more to Jesus and I live to him. This is why the widow can put all that money in that she needs because she knows the ache in her heart is a desire this world can't satisfy, so she lives to God. She lives to the God who loves her with an unshakable love because she knows that she might not have a lot in this life, but she is a daughter of God. And in the new world, Jesus will be her true and better husband who puts her in a family that surpasses any other human relationship in this life. Is there more than this? There is. How do we know? Because Jesus lives. And he now lives so that we can live to him. Let's all stand to our feet as we pray and and go into our time of response, taking communion, reflection together. Lord Jesus, we come to you tonight and we ask that you would open our eyes so that we could have faith once again to behold you, to see you in all of your glory, or to know that you are reigning right now. You are seated at the right hand of God the Father. And you will come once again. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for all that you've done for us in defeating death and defeating our sin. And I pray that right now as we go into this response time that you would um, soften and awaken our hearts to that reality once more, that we would be nourished by your word and by your spirit and through even taking this ordinance of this meal of communion, Lord, that we would be encouraged to 
walk out of this place tonight saying if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to you, Lord. We are, we are yours because of what you've done for us at the cross. And so we worship you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.